Hey, it's my privilege to invite up the most beautiful woman I know to share an amazing word uh, on gratitude. So give it up. Come on, let's be encouraging for me. Thank you, Dave. I think he means most beautiful woman in the whole world. You're ex- Come on. Woman you know and don't know. Thank you. Hey, thanks, team. I'm confident in that. And that he thinks that, at least. That's, that's right. I'm talking, I'm talking relative. Thank you, guys. <laughs> careful. Careful, man. Hey, so in the early 90s, Dr. John Gottman and his colleagues at the University of Washington invited a series of newlywed couples into their psychology lab. And they sat them down on a couple of seats and hooked them up to these sensors and electrodes to measure their heart rate and their skin temperature and how much they were sweating. And they had little monitors on their seats to see how much they were shifting around. And a video camera pointed each one of them to record everything they said, every uh, kind of body language, every expression that went over their face. And they got each couple to, for 15 minutes, talk about an issue that they had a bit of a disagreement on. Not a big thing, not like one of the big things that were in their things, but a little thing. Like, the example, they, some, one couple talked about how their dog was coping with the new apartment they were living in. And they recorded them for 15 minutes. And then they analysed it in the way that only psychologists do. Every little thing was given notice when she rolled her eyes, when he got defensive, when they agreed, when he was neutral, if his lip curled, if there was just a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And they put all of this, they decoded every second what was the feeling that you were expecting, put all of this into an equation, all of that feedback into an equation. And then three years later, and then again six years later, they checked in with that couple who had been newlywed at the time of the experiment to see if they were still married. And they found that they could predict from the results back when they did the test with 83% accuracy if the couple were going to be divorced down the track. If they analysed a couple for uh, speaking for an hour together, they could do it with 95% accuracy. So if you went into their lab, the love lab, they call it, and sat into that test for an hour, he could tell you with 95% accuracy whether your marriage was going to last. It's pretty full on, eh? His team didn't look at the big issues. You know, the big issues that you fight about in your marriage are, are things like money, your family, sex, household chores, how things are going with work, those big things. But in this test, they looked at how they related towards each other, what the emotions were that they were expressing to each other. And out of this... Um, Gottman has developed what he's called the four horsemen. You know, in Revelation, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, war, famine, and death. Well, the four horsemen of relationship apocalypse are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And contempt is the biggest predictor of divorce. And after I read this, I was like, high alert, high alert, how's that going for me? And I remember having a, a couple of um, interactions. We had a couple around for dinner and we were talking about something. And they just disagreed about, I think it was what year something had happened in. And the way that they talked to each other, I was like, oh my goodness, their marriage is not in a good place. Not at all, because I could see these little things happening. And I've become, a, I'm, you know, it's not just about other people, it's about myself too. I've become aware of, sometimes I've seen that, oh, 
<sighs> response. And I'm not here to, um, to offer marriage counselling today, though I do hope that this will be good for your marriage, if you're married, good for your friendships, if you're not. But the interesting thing is that the antidote to contempt, which is the biggest predictor of relationship breakdown, the antidote is gratitude. And that's what this series is all about, being grateful. And of course, I'm no psychologist of anything. I guess I'm a theologian. So let's start with the Bible. If you've got your Bibles, open to Philippians 4. And I'm not going to read them, but just scan through verses 10 to 20. And what's happening in, in this uh, letter? Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. And he's writing to the church in Philippi. And what's happened is recently those that group of people have sent a gift to him. Epaphroditus um, has come with, I guess, some money and, and stuff like that to say, here you are to look after your needs. And he is grateful. He says stuff like, oh, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I rejoice greatly in God because of what you did. Your gifts were so generous. God's been taking care of me. Glory to him. He's thanking the Philippians for all of these gifts, but he's thanking God too. It's kind of this all interwoven together. The thanking God is the thanking people. The thanking people is the thanking God. The two aren't separate. Because we see God's goodness in what other people do for us. Yeah? And in this series so far, we've talk, been talking heaps about what it means to have a heart that is grateful to God and how good that is for you. But also, I don't think you can be truly grateful to God if you're not prepared to be grateful to other people. You can't be truly grateful to God if you're not prepared to be grateful to other people. The person who is all, praise God, isn't God good? Oh, I'm so blessed. You know, that's their talk. But then they're rude to the person who is packing their groceries. There's a, there's a disconnect there that makes you wonder how genuine, how authentic that heart of gratefulness towards God is. And you think, oh, the person who packs my groceries, I clearly don't shop at Pack and Save. The person who packs my groceries, the little stuff, that's just ordinary. But as I'm going to go on a show today, it's being grateful for the ordinary that makes life extraordinary. Being grateful for the ordinary. But let's, let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for everything that you have done for us. Lord, we just, well, we haven't got our heads around it yet, Lord, and I ask that you would open our minds to understand that. But Lord, more than that, we want to we want to be people who are grateful in every area of our lives, Lord. And there's a joy that we want to experience. There's a joy that we see Paul having in this letter to the Philippians that we want to get a hold of somehow, Lord. And that the secret to unlocking that is gratitude. Father, I ask that today you would speak your truth into our hearts. Help us to have hearts and ears that are open to you. And Lord, I ask that you would uncover some, some fundamental lies that we might be believing that are just obstacles towards us living gratitude, uh, living grateful and joyful lives. Father, speak through me today. Amen. So you might be familiar with verses like Luke 6. In Luke 6, verses 44 to 45, it says, A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. And so a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. What you say flows out from what is in your heart. 
And another great verse about the words is Proverbs 18.21. Love this translation. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. And there's an incredible power that our words have to affect the lives of the people who hear those words. But it also affects the person who speaks. And the verse just before this, in verse 20, it says, From the fruit of their mouth a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips they are satisfied. So what you speak comes back to affect you, and it fills you up with either poison or fruit you choose. Because there's the creative power of words. In the beginning, God wanted to make stuff. He spoke and stuff happened. Words have an incredible creative power. But there's more than that. Your words shape you. Out of your heart flows your speech, but then your speech comes back and affects your heart. And I've been thinking a lot about it this week, going, oh, I know that's true, but how does, how does that happen? How does that happen? And what God's been talking to me about is how your speech really determines what it is that you're noticing, what you're focusing on, what you're attending to. What you talk about reflects what you're focused on, but it also reinforces that focus. Now, if you think about vision, so we'll switch to another sense here. We all think that we're seeing everything, eh? Like you think there's stuff out there and I'm seeing it. Like I'm seeing all of you. Actually not. I'm seeing that. I'm seeing this. I'm seeing that. And my brain does this incredible thing where it kind of like knits it all together to give myself the impression that I'm actually seeing one big picture. But actually I'm like, duh, 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 and it sews it together somehow. And that's why you can... Um, you have gaps. I've noticed this recently a lot where I'm looking for something. Oh, oh where's, the, where's the nappy cream? I can't find It's not there. Go, why has anyone seen the blood? Where's the cream? I need the cream. You go back and look, and suddenly it's there. It's like it was, it literally was not there before. But it was there. I just didn't see it because I, I just, I didn't notice it. But my brain kind of like joined it all together. So it seemed like it wasn't there. It's crazy, but it's, your brain does a whole lot of crazy stuff. But it, it, it does that because you actually can't pay attention to everything. You cannot cope with that flood of information. Your brain would explode. And so it sifts out. It sifts, it filters out the things that are relevant, what's important, um, highlights some things. Oh, you need to pay attention to that. That's, you're expecting it to look like this. Here it is. And when you suddenly, your attention shifts, you notice things a whole lot more. Of the, of the mums, who has found that the thing happened? When you get pregnant, suddenly pregnant people are everywhere. Do you guys remember that when you were pregnant? And you're suddenly like, whoa, it's like everyone is pregnant. Last year when we were looking for our new car that we got, our people mover, suddenly there were people movers everywhere when we were thinking about what we wanted. I was driving around town, I'm like, has everyone in Timaru just gone, yeah, we need a bigger car. These are suddenly really cool, let's get one because I was noticing them everywhere. But that was just because I was thinking about what kind of people mover I really wanted. There's no real change. It's just my perspective has changed. How I'm seeing has changed. The thing is that you can actually choose what you focus on. You can direct your sight. You can direct your attention. I can choose to notice some things more than others. 
There's a really curious scripture in Matthew 6. It's tricky. You know how some parts of the Bible you're like, yep, that makes sense. And there's other parts of the Bible you're like, really don't get that bit. And that's okay. I'm still struggling with this bit. But I read something this week that made so much sense. Okay, Matthew 6, 22. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. Hmm. I always read like, uh, it's in this bit talking about like um, you can't serve both God and money. And then there's a bit about your eyes, a lamp. I'm like, what is this some kind of before they knew how eyes worked science that we should just cut it out because it's kind of embarrassing. But actually, it's talking about how you, how you see reality determines whether you are in the dark or not. There's a thing of vision. And the, way, the best way to understand this is if you go a bit later on in Matthew, he uses the same kind of words to explain something else. Later in Matthew, Jesus is talking, and he there's this the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So this is um, a situation Jesus is telling about how there were these group of um, guys who needed work and how the system was working. If you needed work for the day, you'd go down to like the town square and sit around, and then a, a vineyard owner or someone would come and go, hey, I need some work. I'm paying a denarius for a day's wage. Who wants to come and work? And they go, yep, yep. He's like, oh, well, I need five guys, so yep, you'll do. Off we go. But this vineyard owner, but later he comes back, oh, gee, we're not going to get it done. It's going to rain tomorrow. I've got to get my grapes in. I don't really know how it works. Comes back, hey, does anyone still need work? I need some workers. I'll pay a denarius for the rest of the day. And I need, I need four guys. Four guys come and they go off. And he does the same thing again. And he pays them the same amount. And it comes to the end of the day. And the, the early workers, the guys who started working at eight, think, oh, we're going to get more than what we promised, eh? Because those other guys, they only went like an hour, and they still got a denarius. Like it's, yeah. The denarius was like the usual amount for a day's wage. And they're thinking, oh, we're going to get more. But when it comes to it, the master says, oh, here's your denarius. Here's your denarius. Here's, here's what I promised you. And these first guys are like, that's not fair. That's a rip-off. What is, you know, they're throwing a complaint. And you kind of think, well, it's not fair, is it? It's not even, but as I tell my children, not everything has to be even for life to be fair. But the master's reply is, he says, do you begrudge my generosity? But the literal translation of this is, he says, so what the, the Greek really, really says, which they've kind of interpreted to make more sense, he says, is your eye evil because I am good? Oh, so this... It's about my perception. He's saying, I'm doing a good thing here, but the way you're looking at it is really negative, and there's something wrong in your perception. I'm good, but you're, the thing that's troubling you is your negative perception that you're having in it. That's what makes their eye evil. They're focused on what they perceive as unfairness. They're focused on their complaint. When actually they could see the mercy of their vineyard owner is beautiful. They could be grateful for what they have received and happy for others because the owner was so generous. And I can imagine, <coughs> excuse me, I imagine the scenario where the early worker comes home at the end of the day and his wife says, how'd it go? Did you get work today? Because they're living on a day-by-day -day wage basis. Did you, did you get some work? He says, oh, yeah, I worked down at, at John's Vineyard. Oh, great. Did you get a whole day's work? Yeah, yeah, I got a denarius. Oh, that's oh, fantastic. I'll be able to go buy food tomorrow. And then she says, I'm so pleased. And he goes, yeah, but... But these other guys, they didn't do as much work, and they still got the same play. Blah, 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 whinge, whinge, whinge. And it's turned from what was a happy thing 
into a negative thing. And it's all about the perception, all about what they're focused on. And I can imagine him, you know, it's taints her joy. I can imagine him repeating this message in his head. Oh, I'm never going to get ahead. I don't get what I deserve. And this is just going to go into this. Whereas it could have been, yeah, I got work today. Because he could have sat there the whole day and not got any work at all. And have to go home to his wife and say, I didn't get any work today. I'm sorry, I have no money. It's going to be tight tomorrow. He could have, but he could have gone, I got work today. Yeah, this other guy, he was really generous, the master. It didn't seem quite fair, but I guess it's his right. But I got work today, and I'm happy about that. But he focused on the unfairness. What we notice determines our perspective, and it shapes our story. What you focus on, it determines how you're looking at life, and it shapes the story that you're telling yourself. Now, speaking of our new car, Dave and I had a contentious issue which he has this week resolved. I said, I'm going to use this as a sermon illustration, so you better make it happen this week. Well, lo and behold. So when we got our car, it's a great car. I mean, it's not cool, but, you know, it fits the children. That's good. Um, it, the car stereo is, you can only play CDs or mini-discs, or the radio, mini-discs. Who has mini-discs? I know, I, knew, I didn't get, you got mini-discs. Well, I could have tapped into your collection, couldn't I? But we'd been used to having, like, you know, I could play music off my phone. And it was amazing, driving with the kids and being able to put music on. And, like, how many fights did we solve by just being able to put this music on or whatever? And, oh, so good. And then suddenly we didn't have that. And so the agreement was that we were going to get this car because it was good in lots of other ways and we'd just get a car stereo and, you know, stick it in. But it didn't, didn't, it didn't happen. It took a long time to happen. A year to happen. And I'm not saying that like Dave was just sitting around going, May wants a car stereo, not gonna do it. I like to annoy her. There were obstacles. Like we looked at something, oh and then that wasn't gonna work, oh it's gonna work. And then when we realised how expensive it was gonna be like, oh maybe we could just oh maybe oh I don't know. Then we're like, oh okay, you want this thing. But so it was a source of frustration for me. I would get in the car. Sometimes I'd be like, I really really just want to listen to some praise music. We need some praise music to lift the mood. But let's see what CDs we have got. Now, our CD collection is pretty limited, pretty dated. I've listened to a lot of Coldplay, a lot, a lot of Brooke Fraser, a lot of Kirk Franklin is what the kids have been into. And um, Tessa knows all of the lyrics, I think, to Coldplay's X and Y and Viva La Vida because we have had it on rotate. But it was frustrating. But, you know, I know what Proverbs says about the nagging wife. You know, you don't, you don't want to go there. So I'm actually, I'm just going to simmer resentfully about it because that's like a better option, isn't it? Just be like, oh, and mutter under my breath. And I would find myself fixating on this one thing that Dave hadn't done and ignoring all of the rest. I remember having this one moment where I was like, oh, hang on. I realized that what I was saying pretty much was, yeah, 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 yeah. You went to work all day, and you biked home. You biked to work in the freezing cold, and then you biked home, and you sorted out the fire, wouldn't let the fire, and you spent time with the kids, and you fed the baby dinner so I could eat, and then you did the dishes, and then you read to the kids and put them to bed, and now you're sitting down on your laptop doing some like work for church, but you haven't done the car stereo. Totally just fixated. I couldn't see all the other stuff because that issue of the car stereo was just, it was big and it had dominated my perspective and it was shaping my story. I started, Dave never does anything for me, like apart from 
all of that other stuff. You know, I would find myself muttering. Who tends towards muttering? Don't put your hand up if your wife tends towards muttering. <laughs> find myself muttering about it, muttering under my breath as I banged the pots and closed the kitchen doors too forcefully. And I, yeah, saying things like, oh, Dave doesn't do anything for me, doesn't appreciate me. And I caught myself, don't worry, I've caught myself going, hang on a moment, that's not true, is it? And I pulled myself up on it, but it had a real potential to shape my story, to shape a story I'm telling myself of my marriage, of my value to my husband, of what he contributes to me. Can you relate to this? Can you think of things you've had that you're like, they do nothing for me because they haven't done this one thing, but it's all of this? Well, maybe it's something, you know, in your job. Oh, my job sucks because of this thing that I don't like. Actually, there's all these other awesome things. And once upon a time, I desperately wanted this job. And I, when I got it, I was like, praise God, he's given me this job. This is wonderful. But now I have the job, and I'm just going to fix out on this thing that annoys me about the job. <sighs> it's, yeah, it's challenging. <laughs> you can't see everything, anything, because you're caught up in that complaint. And when you get like that, you are not fun to be around. And it is not fun to be you. It is not a fun place. And I'm not saying just ignore the negative. I'm not saying that. Never go, please, can we get a castero? Because we have ordered a castero is coming. Don't put up with mistreatment with everyone. Don't like never lay a complaint about service or anything there. But I'm asking, what kind of outlook do you want to have on life? A negative one defined by whinging and complaint or a positive one defined by gratitude. What's going to be more fun? Let's be honest, the positive one. And Gottman, going back to him, he talks about this thing called uh, positive sentiment override or negative sentiment override. Pretty much just talking about positive perspective, negative perspective. And you can get into this place where you have this negative perspective on anything that happens so even when he does something great like he brings you flowers you're thinking why has he done that he's just meh, meh, meh. <laughs> and he's like, I can't do anything right but when you've got that positive sentiment override where you've got like relational currency and you're feeling like things are good conflicts arise but you we can work our way through them things are good you're feeling connected you're fun to be around and life is fun but it's those, those four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse that lead towards that. And what's fascinating is that the antidote to contempt is building a culture of admiration and appreciation. And within the context of a relationship, whether that's, I think, a relationship with your spouse, a relationship with a friend, with your parents, with your children, with your colleagues, you need to remind yourself of the positive. Think about the positive qualities just to restore that that fondness, that admiration you have for that person. But practice gratitude for positive actions. And practice is the key word. Gottman talks about doing small things often, daily gestures and expressions of appreciation and love. And he also, as a side note, the way he says to talk about that negative thing, how to deal with that, it's about respectful requests sandwiched within statements of appreciation. So to break that down, be like, hey Dave, I appreciate everything you do and I know you're really busy, but I would really love it if we could get that cast area. When do you think would be a good time for us to look at that and thanks for everything we do? Rather than, you never do that thing. Because no one wants to do anyone for a whingy person. As I often say to my kids, whingy girls don't get what they want. Why have you never quoted this back to me? 
You will now. Darn. Stop talking. <laughs> oh, dear. But when you're in a funk, you need to shift your perspective. And one of the most powerful ways that, to do that is to practice gratitude. So let's take our mind back to Paul in Philippians. He's so grateful. He's, oh, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with the gifts you've sent me from Epaphroditus. Oh, life is so good. And Eugene Peterson, who has done the message translation, he describes Philippians as Paul's happiest letter. Do you know where Paul was writing this letter from? A jail cell. Not great, you know. I wouldn't be stoked to be in a jail cell. He's in the position where he's been on the road, traveling to serve Jesus for 20 years. And being on the road back then wasn't like, I'm flying first class. It was like, I'm walking. But it's, and like he's finding lots of his work is being unpacked by his competitors who are having a go at him and undermining him. He's in jail. And he is still so chipper. He really had plenty to complain about, but he's chosen to be grateful. And it's easy to go, yeah, but yeah, I get that, but at least these things. What do I have to be grateful about? Yeah, okay, there's Jesus dying on the cross and forgiving all of my sins and I'm made right with God. But these big things in my life, those big things. But you don't, you don't need to save gratefulness for the exceptional or the extraordinary. I can be grateful for the little and the ordinary. Another great illustration from my marriage is I, when we first got married, I took me a while, it's still taking me a while to learn, huh, that um, Dave's primary love language is words of affirmation. You guys know what love languages are? Yeah, there's like five of them, gifts, service, physical touch, words of affirmation, and time. Time, that's, I should know that's, one of my, that's my top one. Dave's is words of affirmation. I can cut him down with my words. I can build him up with my words. And he likes me to say thanks when he does things. And I really struggle with this. Like, he does the dishes. Why should I have to say thanks for doing the dishes? Like, of course you should do the dishes because you live in this house. Why should I say thanks? And I really, so you're relating to this, but I have learned that I was wrong because... I don't say, I've learned that I was wrong. Wow, I've learned, but now I'm right. Just don't worry. <laughs> I really try, yeah, don't worry. This is getting too exposing. I'm really vulnerable. But I had this really false thought that if I'm thanking someone, I'm saying that what they did was exceptional. They were going above and beyond. That was extraordinary. It's only extraordinary things that deserve an expression of thanks. And it's actually not true. That's not what Dave was saying when he's like, oh, I appreciate it if you, you know, say that you notice that I do things. It's just saying, hey, I noticed that thing you did, and it's not that exceptional, but it's good. And I want to show you that I appreciate you. <laughs> I mean, you do the dishes exceptionally, but Dave faithfully does the dishes. You know, he's not one of those guys who come home from work and just make me do all the stuff. That wouldn't go down so well. But I can be grateful for the ordinary things. I can say that ordinary thing you do is good. I see it and I appreciate it. Thanks. When it comes to, let's go back to the person who packs your groceries, the supermarket operator. 
that person, you could say, oh, they're just doing their job. Why should I thank them? And actually, I kind of am thanking them because in purchasing these groceries, I am contributing toward their wage. So their wage is enough thanks. Why should I say thank you? But actually, like, come on. They're doing something for you. Let's just be more gratitude. Like, it's not like a zero-sum equation. Like, I've only got so much gratitude. Can I only give it out for exceptional things? No, you could be nice to people all the time. But when you're grateful, it's so much better. But it slips. It's amazing how it slips. You know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? So true. So true. When you first get it, it's amazing. Then it becomes ordinary and you just get used to it and you stop being grateful and then soon you find out you're contemptuous about it. Because this is lie. Some, this lie that something has to be extraordinary to bring us joy. And I think part of it is that modern culture doesn't really celebrate the ordinary. It celebrates the... What's so much of like what is awesome, if something's awesome, you get public recognition for it. If something's awesome, you put it on Facebook and people like it. And those are the things that I feel good about. I can't feel good about my life unless it's exceptional in some way, unless I'm exceptional in some way. And that, that exceptionalness is acknowledged by the world. When actually, you just being you and you being ordinary delights God. That's, that just delights God. And that's enough. When we notice the goodness in little everyday things, we appreciate life so much more. I love this quote from Marianne Williamson. Joy is what happens to us when we allow ourselves to recognize how good things really are. Joy is what happens to us when we allow ourselves to recognize how good things really are. Now, I want joy to happen to me. I want it. Because when we live grateful, we release joy. It's joy for us. It's joy for others. It's a win-win. Because you actually get a whole lot better treatment when you're grateful. In Ecclesiastes 10.12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. That is a fantastic metaphor. What you say is either going to bring good things to you or not so good things to you. It was interesting. Um, when we were traveling up to Shout, Dave had gone up the day before, and so I, for a pastor's thing, and I came up the next day with the girls. And traveling with four children is potentially quite stressful. And when we done the year before, I got so stressed out. It was, it was not good. So this year I was like, I'm not going to be stressful. I can go with the flow. I'm going to be positive. So I was in... Super chipper mode. Everything is wonderful. I am great. I'm going to be kind to everyone because it's going to come back to me. And we had oversized baggage because who knows when you travel with a baby? So much stuff. Like, oh my goodness. So we had to go down to oversized baggage. And I'm like, hey, come on, guys, this way. Yep, it's like herding cats. We're going down here. So we lined up at the oversized baggage. And there were some people in front of us who are obviously American. And they had been obviously skiing because they had... Skiing, I guess, really long bags. <coughs> Looked like they had a pretty great holiday, to be honest. They just were not really stoked about their life. They were, I mean, they were probably travelling a whole lot further than me, but the way they treated the lady in oversized baggage was just very formal, very, kind of treated her like she was a self-checkout machine. And because and I was in super chipper mode when she's like, oh, I can help. Oh, great, that'd be fantastic. Oh, you've got bags to put my stuff in. Thank you so much. It's so great. You guys didn't used to have bags. And I was really worried about, oh, it's so good. And then she, oh, we talked. She complimented my children, which is the way to win every, any mother over. 
And it was just nice. And as we walked away, we went up the stairs. Oh, we got to go on the escalators, girls. Woo! Ruby said, Mom, that lady was so nice. And I thought, oh, yeah, she was really nice to us. But to those people before us, she was just doing her job. You know, she's behaving like a self-checkout machine because she was treated like a self-checkout machine. But I came away from the interaction feeling so much better. But what decided it was what I went into it with, that level of gratitude that I had. But things get in the way of gratitude. Things get in the way, and I am so challenged by this. You know, sometimes you preach messages, and you're like, yeah, I've got this message, and it's so good, and I'm preaching it because God has taught it to me, and I'm living it. I like those messages. Some messages you preach, and you're like, oh, I know I'm so aware of my lack in this area. I'm in one, this is one of those messages. I quite like having something to whinge about. I do. It's nice. Just shush. I like having something to whinge about. In a marriage, a complaint can become ammunition. I remember talking, saying this once to um, Mel Aldridge who's getting married later in the year, and I was saying something about, oh, it's kind of nice, though, if you've got a complaint, because then you can pull it out whenever you need it. She was like, what do you even mean? <laughs> I was like, just you wait. <laughs> but you know what it means? So next time he brings something up, I've actually got this thing here that I can pull out to defend myself with by attacking you about something else. So yeah, you're having a go to me about that thing, but you haven't done the car stereo, so you cannot say anything. I quite like having a pity party. I can throw a really good pity party. Unfortunately, no one ever comes. No one comes. Because I have this presiding story over my life. Like Dave um, actually brought up before, this, this, these lies that we believe. I have this Martha story. You know Mary and Martha in the Bible? Jesus has come to teach, and Martha's like out in the kitchen, and Mary's just hanging out with Jesus, and Mary's like, wow, Jesus, your teaching is amazing. Martha's like, why is Mary not helping me? I've got to make this amazing meal for Jesus, even though Jesus did not ask. I'm still going to do this. I've got this Martha thing, and I'm working on it. Holy Spirit is working on it. And um, I'm going to understand that a lot of how I'm feeling is actually my responsibility. Life was so much easier when I could blame other people, when I could blame my circumstances for how I was feeling. I could just be angry and not take responsibility. It was easier. It wasn't fun, but it was easier. And I've, I've learnt that I have a habit of being discontented. So for a long time, we struggled to get pregnant with Ida. had a number of miscarriages, and it was really hard. It was a really hard space. And that was, I'd been in this space with God, and God taught me so many beautiful, precious things in that space. And then we got pregnant, and it was a miracle. It was amazing. And I remember, so being at, was it at a Quipera conference, not this year, but the year before, and coming to God and being like, oh, kind of like, I was pregnant by then, I was, and past the like danger zone, and I was scratching, mentally searching around for something to be unhappy about, because I had for so long been like, oh God, <laughs> and I was like, oh actually everything's kind of good, um, it's got to be something I could complain about. Uh, uh, honestly, and I was realised this. Oh, I've got a a habit of of thinking that I've got to be discontented about something. And too often recently, I found myself with my delightful daughter focusing on the things that are hard about having a baby. 
the constraint that it is when you want to go and do stuff. But she's my hoped-for child. She's my breakthrough. She's my miracle. But I'm just going to complain about my miracle because, like, my miracle is, sometimes requires things of me. Wow. Because <laughs> what needs to change isn't so much my circumstances. It's what has got to change is my fundamental story, that it's hard to be me, that God requires just hard things for me. Actually, the truth is I'm a child of God and I'm full of favor. But I've got to challenge that story. I've got to challenge it because I want to see joy in my life. And the way to challenge that is practicing gratitude. There's something about gratitude where you're, you're pushing it again and again. It's a confession that is aligning with the truth of God, that he has good plans for me, that I am safe in him and life is good. Now, some of you are not have that grumpy persona of we like to whinge. Some of you, it's fear. I'm afraid it won't last. I'm waiting for something bad to happen because in the past, something has always gone wrong. So I don't feel like I can be grateful. Brede Brown says, she says, I think, well, we can think that not being grateful and not feeling joy will somehow make it hurt less when it gets taken away. Being too happy is tempting fate. I've heard people say that. Really? Like, how does that work? Fate, whatever, what is fate? Nothing. It's like, oh, she's really happy. Got to make sure she's not happy. So, oh, here, we'll throw that at her. That's not how it works at all. But that fear can be a presiding story. Actually, God is for me. God is with me in every situation. Whatever life throws my way, he will be with me. And he's going to make the best of it for me. And actually worrying about it is not going to change anything. We can have a scarcity mentality. We just don't have enough. I haven't got enough time. I haven't got enough energy. I haven't got enough money. I haven't got enough skills. I haven't got enough joy, whatever. And so we just see that what's not there. We complain about that rather than focusing in on everything that we have to be grateful for. And when you're trapped in fear, when you're trapped in constant discontent, like I said, you're not that fun to be around. And it's not that fun to be you. And I want to change. I want to change. And I reckon probably some of you want to change as well. I invite Amanda, can you come on the kids? Actually, let's have that whole band up. We great. And the key to doing it, it's not like, you know, just have an attitude of gratitude. How do I do that? Like Dave talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's about changing your story. And the way to change your story is to change what you're focusing on. And the most powerful way you have to change what you're focusing on is to change what you are speaking. Because you can control what you are speaking. You can't just go, I'm just going to think different. I'm just going to think different. But you can control what your mouth does. And it can be hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Sometimes you have to write it down and read it out. I remember back in my second year at uni, I had a pretty rough time. I was going through a rough time with God. Like it was one of those like great but rough times, but nice in retrospect. And um, I had some really bad back pain. I ended up having back surgery. And I was really challenged by um, just wanting to keep a positive mindset and praising God in it. But it was really sore. Like I had to do my exams lying down and just walking. Chronic pain is terrible. And I actually wrote down some scriptures that had really spoken. I had them on a piece of card in my back pocket. And when I could feel the gloom descend, I would pull them out and say them out loud again and again until I felt my attitude, my mood shift. I put it back in my pocket. I had to carry it around for a lot. But you can change what you speak. You can say it. You've got to see it and then speak it. See it and then speak it. 
Notice the things you have to be grateful for. Maybe you just need today, sit down and, and write out a list of all the things you could be grateful for and every day add something to it. Maybe if you need to do some repair in a relationship, sit down and say, these are the things that I love about you. Thank you for these things. I have a thing that I sometimes do with my daughters that I haven't done for a while, but I, I did it with Tessa the other day. And I said, shall I tell you the things I love about you? And her face was like, yes. And you just go off, you just talk about these things, the thing I love about them, I love this about you, I love that about you. And it's like it fills them up for a while. I think, well, have I not done that for a while? But do that. Do that. It's, it, it repairs a relationship. I probably need to do that with my kids after a hard week of school holidays. Ooh. But maybe you're like me and you're feeling challenged by this message too. I want to invite you to stand. Not standing because you're like, I don't know, trying to prove something to someone else, but standing because you say, oh God, I think I want to change in this too. I, I want to find more joy. So let's just take a moment to open our hearts before God. Father God, we want to be more fun to be around and we want to have more fun. And Father, we are sorry for where we have got preoccupied with the things that we're not happy about, the complaints that we have, and even where they are legitimate complaints, Lord, they have become so big that they have filled our vision and we have not been able to see everything else. God, we have been ungrateful before you. Lord, we want to confess. And if you're with me, just, just say it in your heart. God, I confess to you that I have been ungrateful to my spouse. I have been ungrateful to my children. We've been ungrateful to you. God, and we're sorry. Father, we are amazed at the way that you endure mistreatment from us with such patience. Oh, Father, your love, it astounds us. God, and in this space, we want to change. Lord, we want to be the kind of people who are grateful. Lord, that even when challenges come our way, we could have the same kind of attitude as Paul does, where he's rejoicing in you because of this gift that has come into his life, despite all the circumstances that he had to complain about. God, we want to be that person. And Father, I ask that in this moment now, Lord, you would help us shift. Lord, what are the lies perhaps that we are fundamentally believing that it's got to be hard to be me or there's never going to be enough? Or maybe it is that I'm, I'm, it's not going to last. Good things don't last. Holy Spirit, if there's, if there's something like that for us, guys, you speak it really clearly to our minds right now. God, we renounce the lie. We renounce the lie that my life is supposed to be hard. We renounce the lie that good things don't last. We renounce the lie that there's never enough. We renounce the lie that, God, you don't love us as much as you love other people. And instead, God, we proclaim the truth that you are a God who loves us. You are a God who has good plans for us. God, that you want to give us good things and not take things away from us. You, God, are a God who abundantly blesses us. We are your children. Your favour is upon us. That you, God, are always with us. Even when life throws us hard things, God, you are with us. You have given us so many good things. And Lord, we want to remind ourselves with that. Oh, help us, God. 
I want to give you a physical challenge this week. Physical challenge. It's my best Australian accent. If you're younger than me, you're like, what on earth is she referring to? We'll discuss that later. Physical challenge. Practice gratitude. You have to practice it. Okay, I am rubbish at lots of things, particularly things involving throwing or catching balls. But if I practiced at them, I would get better. If I want to get better at being thankful towards my husband and building him up, which let's be honest is a whole lot is good for me as well. I've got to practice it. So practice it. Take some time this week. It might feel a bit naff sitting down with your partner being like, let's just talk about the things we're grateful for. But like, you know, they're your partner, so you know, they like you already. No one's like, oh no, please, please don't tell me the things you like about me. Maybe you need to start a list this week sit down and what are the things I'm grateful for Lord and practice noticing practice noticing the good things wow it felt so good to have a shower the way the light is on the grass this morning fresh bread the smile of my child a bed a bed with clean sheets be grateful and it will release joy. Yeah? I'm going to hand over to Pastor Dave. Thank you.